Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie in the studio of 3CR for Solidarity Breakfast this Saturday, this chilly Saturday. And in the studio, I'm joined by our new team member, Fiona. G'day to you, Fiona. Good morning, Annie. And yes, it is pretty chilly out there, but it's lovely and warm inside. Good place, I'd rather be inside. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you've got a, a great report for us today about uh, a film that's coming up. I have, yeah, and a couple of, well, not too, yeah, maybe about a week or two. Um, a new documentary called Border Politics is going to be playing at Cinema Nova in Melbourne. So it's um, a documentary that's been um, put together um, by a group of filmmakers and um the uh, the main voice of the documentary is Julian Burnside. So he's a very well-known activist um, for um, human rights and in particular the rights of asylum seekers and refugees. Um, and he takes us on a tour really around the world um, looking at uh, different countries in the West and how they've responded to um, people, uh, asylum seekers, coming to their borders seeking protection. Yeah, well, I thought we'd go straight straight on to uh, hearing what Julian had to say to you. Yep. It's a fascinating interview because there's some real tidbits about his personal journey. Julian Burnside, lawyer and human rights and refugee advocate and author, thanks very much for joining us. Border Politics is a very sobering, it's a new documentary, a very sobering account of the harsh attitudes that Western societies have taken towards refugees in your documentary, you go into quite a bit of detail about the history of refugee rights, various declarations, and I was just wondering why you felt um, it was necessary to give this historical perspective. First of all, I should explain, when you call it my documentary, I, I was just asked to be the sort of um, unscripted David Attenborough, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I don't have any financial stake in the film at all, mm-hmm. um, so I was just approached to uh, be the person who talks. Um, Historical aspect, I guess it's pretty hard to... It's pretty hard to overlook the origins of refugee law and human rights ideas during the 20th century, and that's why the history of it all is important. Mm -hmm. And there are really two bookends. One is... uh, what happened during the Second World War, um, which provoked Eleanor Roosevelt to produce the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Mm-hmm. That's in 1948. And at the other end, September 11, 2001, when um, 
attitudes in the West to the idea of human rights seem to have shifted. So th- those those two events were key key events in the in 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 our attitudes towards refugees. That's well, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is clearly a significant um, point in the modern development of human rights discourse. In fact, I would say it's really the start of it all. Um, and the, and September 11 was when the tide turned. Mm. It's when um, attitudes to human rights began to shift noticeably. Uh, you know, the tide started going out. Yep. And, of course, it coincides with the, the rise of Islamophobia as well. Well, absolutely, yeah. And, mm. and, and especially in Australian attitudes to refugees because a little-known fact is that the decision of Justice North in the federal court in the Tampa litigation was handed down in Melbourne at 2.15 in the afternoon on the 11th of September 2001. And eight or nine hours later, the attack on America happened. Mm. And all of a sudden, in the West, uh, there aren't any terrorists, there's only Muslim terrorists. And in Australia, um, boat people became illegals. And, of course, it's nonsense. They don't break any law by mm. fleeing persecution. And um, it's, it's significant that people who are fleeing terrorism probably are not terrorists themselves. That's right. And, of course, al- almost all the boat people who, get to Australia, who have got to Australia in the past, almost all of them have ultimately been accepted as genuine refugees. That's right, which makes the fear-mongering kind of incomprehensible, that the, you know, the, the language that the political leaders have used, very divisive language. Yeah, well, it, it, it's incomprehensible until you recognise that it offered a golden opportunity to John Howard to save his then rather difficult-looking uh, fate because in the middle of 2001, it mm. did not look as though he was going to get back into office um, in the election that had to be held later that year. But then September 11 happened, and two months later there's the federal election, mm. and he came back with uh, a great majority mm. because because of his great cry, we will decide who comes to our country mm. and the circumstance in which they come. And that was one of the most deceptive pieces of politics imaginable because part of it's true. If he's talking about migration policy, it's absolutely right. If he's talking about refugee policy, it was absolutely wrong. And in the context, it's clear that he was talking about refugee policy. Uh, And there's an interesting domestic analogy, if if I can tell it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm entitled to say I will decide who comes to my home and the circumstance in which they come. And if I'm fed up with having visitors, I can say I won't have any visitors till Thursday week. Uh, That would be legitimate, even if it's a bit unfriendly. Mm. So what if the next morning a little kid runs up to the front door and says, please help me, I'm being chased by a man with a big knife. Mm. I could say, come back on Thursday week, Mm. but that would be outrageous. Um, what What I should do is let her in, sit her down, check her story, and if she's telling the truth, protect her, and if she's not telling the truth, send her home. Um, now, that's, that's refugee policy in a nutshell. You, mm. If people risk their lives to get to Australia and ask for protection from persecution, 
you should not mistreat them. And it is that simple. It is, it's a simple act of compassion. It is. It is really that simple. Mm. It's just, I mean, you know, this has all got tangled up in politics and I should make it clear, I have no political yep. views or alignment at all. Um, and unfortunately, basic human decency has got tangled up in political questions, mm. which is a real pity and it's damaging Australia. You know, one of the things I discovered um, going around the world making this film is that people in other Western countries look at what Australia is doing and they are actually shocked because they thought, like I thought, that we were a country uh, which valued decent treatment of people mm. as a good thing. The, the sort of country that says everyone deserves a fair go, mm. unless they're refugees. Mm. That's, that's the way it works. And I think other countries are really shocked at what we're doing. And Australia's been going down this path for almost 20 years now. Oh, yeah. It's... yeah, tell me about it. Mm. I've been on that. Yeah, I've been on that trip for the whole time, and it's uh, very alarming. Do you do you feel do you sense any shift at all, or in terms of the policy immigration refugee policy in Australia? No shift in the coalition. Yep. I understand that the Labor Party might be wrestling with it um, internally. Mm. Uh, I hope that's right, and I hope they sort it out because. Really, they they ought to know better. Mm. It's it's conspicuous that the the coalition started calling boat people illegals, which is false. Yeah. Um, and and the Labor Party have never called them illegals, but on the other hand, they've never contradicted it either. Mm. And I think that's important mm. because if they were going to do what oppositions ought to do, which is to oppose the government, they should have stood up at the earliest opportunity and said calling them illegal is a lie. They're misleading you. Now, mm. I, my sense is that the average member of the public in Australia thinks that um, we are being protected from criminals. You know, call them illegals for 17 years, yeah. call it border protection, and what are they going to think? They're going to think, well, we're being protected from criminals. If that was true, it would make sense. Um, you might say, well, it's a, being a little bit harsh, but it still makes sense. The idea mm. makes sense. Mm. But when you discover that we are mistreating innocent human beings and we're doing it deliberately, mm. that looks very different. Yep. You know, the, the government says, the government tells us that there's only 36 children um, who are refugees on the route. Not true. There's more than 150 children, refugee children, being held on the route in miserable circumstances at, at, this, um, at this present because of us. At this moment in time? Right now, yeah, 2018. And how, how were you able to find out that, that, that information? Um, because I have contacts amongst mm -hmm. people who work in the refugee sector on Nauru. So, in fact, I had a conversation with one just today, so the, uh, someone mm -hmm. who has worked on Manus and on Nauru and who knows what the facts are. The government is blatantly lying to the public. With the oh, yes. Our government, I mean, and, and let me make it very clear, the main liars are Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison and, and Malcolm Turnbull. And mm. they have misled this country for years. Mm. And it's disgraceful. It is. Yeah. And it, it is shaming us overseas. And not only, not only the fact that our politicians are dishonest, um, 
politicians on both sides say, well, we have to do this as a deterrent because we're very worried about people drowning on their way to Australia. And that's fair enough. I mean, you know, every, every death at sea mm. is tragic. But um, I don't believe them when they say that they're worried about people drowning. I just do not believe them. I think they're lying to us in that. And that's a terrible lie to tell. Mm. But the reason I think they're lying is this. The coalition make it virtually impossible for us to know the fate of people who don't get to Australia, the boats that are turned back. Do do any of those people drown on their way back to Indonesia? We don't know. We're not allowed to know because that's non-water matter. Um, What about people who, instead of heading towards Australia, manage to head north towards Europe and Mm. drown in the Mediterranean? Do we know about that? Mm. No. Mm. Uh, What about the people who decide not to move at all? Uh, understand their ground and face their persecutors. Mm. If they're killed by their persecutors, they're still dead. Do we know about them? No. Do we care? No. The whole drowning's excuse is just our way of making sure that our consciences remain clear. We don't want to be upset by the facts, and so Mm. we turn our back on the facts. Why does the government make it so difficult for Australians to get to Nauru in order to see what's going on? Because they don't want us knowing the truth. Have you have um, you been to any of the offshore detention centres? I've been to Nauru a couple of times. I haven't been to Manus. So were, um, were you able, were you granted access or how did that work? Well, sort of yes and no. Um, uh, I tried to get to, the first time I tried to get to Nauru, um, I got a visa uh, eventually. It took a lot of doing. And, and I got a ticket on the... Nauru Airlines flight to Nauru. That was difficult. Um, in fact, it was very interesting because when I rang in Nauru uh, and said, uh, you know, I want a ticket, I introduced myself, said I want a ticket to go there on such and such a day because I had a case in the Supreme Court there. And, um, and they said, that's impossible. And I said, why? And they said, because you'd need a visa. And I said, well, I've got a visa. And they said, well, that's impossible. <laughs> it was very revealing. Um, anyway, so... It was a case that I had mounted in the Nauru Supreme Court mm-hmm. against uh, the Commonwealth Government challenging the legal underpinnings of the then Pacific Solution. Yep. And um, I went to the airport on the day of the flight, the Melbourne airport, and um, the whole Nauru legal team, who also live in, in Melbourne, were at the, at the airport to get on the same flight. But they all checked in, got on board, no problem. And I turn up to the um, to the desk and I try to check in. I show my ticket, I show my passport and a visa and all that. And the guy said, no, you're not allowed to board. I said, but why? I've got a ticket, I've got a passport, I've got a visa. He said, no, no, the president of Nauru rang me and said, don't let Burnside on the plane. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> so, goodness. Yeah. So you but, didn't, you know, you didn't end mean, up going? Well, I didn't get to go that time. Mm-hmm. I have subsequently managed to get there twice. Um, in relation to other cases I've done there, mm. uh, and it's it's pretty wretched. I haven't, I haven't mm. been there under the current iteration of the Pacific Solution, but I have just, as mm. I say today, had another meeting with a person who's worked on Nauru, and I've met a number of people who've worked on Nauru in the refugee area, mm-hmm. um, not for the government, but for other agencies, uh, mm. and... Um, the stories are all the same. Mm. And incidentally, talking about talking about people drowning and the, the drowning excuse, 
I don't know if you remember, but a year or so ago, a bloke called Omid Masamali um, killed himself on Nauru. Uh, he, he and his family had been accepted by the Nauruan processing people as genuine refugees, but he was told, um, look, you're not allowed to go to Australia and we can't resettle you anywhere else, so you're mm. going to have to stay in the community here. Mm. The community in, in Nauru resent refugees yep. to an extent that's almost unthinkable. And he was so desperate at the idea that he and his family would have to spend an indefinite time on Nauru, um, went to a public place, doused himself in petrol and set himself on fire, and he died. And Kathy Wilcox, who's a marvellous cartoonist, the next day had a cartoon, which was a very simple drawing of a man engulfed in flames, and the caption read, Not Drowning. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Fascinating interview, uh, uh, Fiona. Yeah, it was. It was kind of informative. It was, but it was also moving. Um, it was intimate. Um, it, it kind of went in a range of directions. Um, but just a reminder to our listeners that that we're talking with Julian Burnside about the documentary Border Politics, which looks at um, the West Society's treatment of, of asylum seekers and refugees, and it's playing at Cinema Nova in a couple of weeks. So look out for it, please. Yeah, so we'll go into the second part of this because, uh, as you said, it, it was wide-ranging and in- incredibly informative. And as uh, one of the things about uh, border politics, which is fascinating, is that uh, Julian Burnside is the ultimate conservative, right-minded gentleman who's got a very sharp mind, and uh, he takes you on this journey of uh, of surprise and uh, bewilderment at uh, how uh, some. Our systems are uh, letting the most vulnerable down. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 14, says that every person has the right to seek asylum in any territory they can reach. And the interesting thing about that, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was Eleanor Roosevelt's great project after the end of the Second World War. And um, Australia, despite its then very small size, I mean, we had a population, what, 3 million? at the end of the Second World War. Despite our very small size, Australia contributed very significantly to the creation of the Universal Declaration. Mm. And it was an Australian, Doc Everett, who presided over the General Assembly of the United Nations on the 10th of December 1948 when the Universal Declaration was um, was mm-hmm. accepted by virtually every country in the world. Mm. 10th of December 1948 was a really, really important day because Australia sort of uh, put up its hand to say, these are the values Mm. that we support. And now we betray those values. Very interesting thing. At the time when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister of Australia, uh, UNHCR Special Rapporteur on Torture um, delivered a report in relation to five refugees held by us on Manus. Those, their cases had been referred to him. And he said that in those five cases that he had considered, Australia was in breach of its obligations under the Convention Against Torture. And Tony Abbott's response publicly was, Australians are sick and tired of being elected to mm-hmm. by the United Nations. Yeah, I recall that. It's, it's, hard, yeah. it's hard to yeah. think yeah. of any greater from the position we occupied in late 1948 when the Universal Mm. Declaration of Human Rights was accepted. 
It's an absolute black stain on the nation's history, without a doubt. It is. It really yep. is. Yeah. I mean, to be candid, it's. Um, uh, I, I, I hesitate to compare it with the stolen generation mm, because they're mm, so mm. different, but they're both, mm. I think, terrible episodes in our history. Yep. Um, and and can I say? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to distract the conversation, but. Australia's the nation to global warming is also pretty drastic. Mm. Um, and if I if I had to stand back and say, uh, you know, pick a single a single issue that is the most important, I'd say probably climate change is the most important. Mm. Um, if 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 climate change keeps going without us making a sustained attempt to uh, adjust for it, correct it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of us are going to turn out to be refugees, although we wouldn't be refugees according to the definition. But mm. we will be. We will face awful difficulty. You Can I add one thing about that? Yes. There's an irony, given that Tony Abbott was the one who was actively against the idea of. Uh, it doesn't believe climate change. If if climate change goes the way most climate scientists say, um, then frankly all of us in the coastal capitals, we're all history, um, and we are talking you know, a long, long mm. way ahead. But there will be survivors in the human race. There'll be people like the Kalahari Bushmen. They'll survive because they're accustomed to dealing with difficult climatic conditions. And outback Aborigines as well. So it may be that if we follow Tony Abbott's position on climate change, the Aborigines may get their land back. <laughs> It'd be a great irony, wouldn't it? That would be, yeah, that would be... Trouble is, we won't be around to enjoy the irony of it. In the documentary, you do mention a Bill of Rights and, the, and that if there was such a legal tool in Australia that the federal parliament wouldn't be able to, um, wouldn't be able to strip you know, asylum seekers of their human rights like they are now. Is that yep. is that the, is that that is the case? Is it? Uh, yeah. Look, when you talk about the Bill of Rights, uh, you have to be fairly clear on what you're talking about. The American Bill of Rights, which is what everyone thinks of, isn't really a Bill of Human Rights. Um, Victoria has a Human Rights Charter. The ACT has a Human Rights Act. Um, it, at the federal level, we do not have. Um, um, coordinated or coherent human rights protection, which is great to think. We're the only Western nation that doesn't. Mm. Um, if we had coherent human rights protection at a federal level, it would be, I think, very difficult or maybe impossible for the federal government to keep doing what it's doing okay. to people who turn up seeking asylum. By the way, can I add one thing to that? Yep. A lot of people say oh, well, you know, you can't have open borders. I agree with that. I'm not into open borders. Um, they talk about the the fact that there are more refugees in the world today, uh, the greatest number since the end of the Second World War. That's true. But what it overlooks is that the world's population now is three times greater than the world's population at the end of World War Two. So relatively speaking, 
the problem is smaller than it was at the end of World War Two, and yet we coped, and we didn't show the sort of hostility which we are now showing. Yeah, um, that's a good point. If, mm. if, if uh, the other thing is, um, if you look at the pattern of unauthorised boat arrivals of refugees in Australia, it runs, it tracks in parallel with global refugee movements. We get a tiny fraction of a percentage of the number of refugees on the move generally, but when global refugee movements increase, so the numbers arriving in Australia by boat increased. Mm -hmm. Um, Nothing very surprising about that. Mm. Some people have a better chance of getting down this way than getting up to Europe. Yep. Um, I think what we have to accept is that if they if they stumble on our shores asking for safety, we shouldn't mistreat them. That's right. That's, that's what it comes down uh, to. The, yeah. And, and especially, you, you sort of understand it once you meet a few refugees, mm. um, and I suspect that most of the politicians in Canberra have never met a refugee and haven't the faintest idea mm. uh, what they're fleeing, why they're fleeing, or um, mm. how they're actually treated as individuals you know there's a danger there's a danger with a concern about human rights that we think just of the large picture you have to regard it as how it affects individual human beings yeah and every every single every every individual and every human being has their inalienable rights not just some mm. that, that that's exactly right yep and and maybe the way of testing it is to say, okay, how would it feel if I was in that person's position? Mm. You know, I've escaped the sort of um, horrendous mistreatment that the Rohingyas in Burma have been experiencing, mm. and I've managed to escape um, to this place called Australia, which I'd never heard of before, and then they took me by force to a place called Manus Island, part of Papua New Guinea. How does that feel? Mm. How would it feel for us if we had escaped that sort of mistreatment and then found ourselves being mistreated even more again? Mm. You know, it's really interesting. The Rohingyas are an interesting group because to be a Rohingya from Burma these days makes it... You're as likely to be a refugee, a genuine refugee as if you were a Jew fleeing Germany in the late 1930s. Yep. Um, it really is that clear. Mm. Um, so the Rohingyas, they, they've been you know, taken by force by us to Manus Island, part of Papua New Guinea, and at the same time as the Australian government was complaining about the treatment of Rohingyas in Burma, it was offering Rohingyan refugees in Papua New Guinea, it was offering them $25,000 in cash if they would return Ten. to Burma. I mean, it's breathtaking. It's, they're saying, yep. you can't come here, you can stay in Papua New Guinea, or you can uh, take twenty five grand and go back to the place that was persecuting you. Just breathtaking. At the same time acknowledging that they were being persecuted back in of their homeland. I mean, it would be impossible to deny it. Mm. I mean, you know, there were very, very, very clear accounts. There was a, a report in the New York Times late last year um, about 
a number of Rohingyans who are trying to cross the river into... Um, where are they going? They were crossing a river into one of the adjacent countries. In any event, uh, they, they, um, there was a woman who said that she was up to her waist in water in the river. She had her 18-month-old baby that she was holding, uh, and one of the one of the uh, Burmese guards came up to her and ordered her to hand over the baby. So she refused and held it tighter. He clubbed her in the face with the butt of his rifle, grabbed the baby and threw it onto a fire. She was then dragged into a hut where she was raped by half a dozen guards and she eventually escaped naked uh, into the river again and across to safety. Now, how can we think, how can we think that someone who manages to escape that sort of treatment should be thrown into a jail on a desert island? for years on end. I mean, it's just horrifying that the treatment of people on Nauru is, has been virtually as bad. On one view, on one view worse. Though I don't know if you, you understand, but the division is that um, unaccompanied men get sent to Manus Island, part mm-hmm. of Papua New Guinea, and uh, women, children or families get taken to Nauru. Okay. Incidentally, little interesting fact that appeals to me for some reason is that Nauru is very small. It's got a population of 9,500 people and it is two square kilometres smaller than Tullamarine Airport. Well, I thought we'd just finish by um, just mentioning to listeners, people in the audience, that, that they must write to their MP and, uh, and ask them very frank questions about whether they think boat people are illegal and, um, and get a response from their local MP. That, uh, um, that's a strategy that I know you've put forward. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, in fact, on my website, I think I've yep. got about a dozen very simple questions that people can ask their MPs. And um, when you say write to them, I think it's important that it should be an actual letter, not an email. Mm. So, um, you Is know, that... a letter, preferably handwritten as long as it's legible mm-hmm. and really, really simple and short. So along the lines of DRX, I'm a voter in your electorate. Um, do you think refugee? Do you think boat people are quote unquote illegal? If yes, what offence do they commit? Yours mm. faithfully. Mm. Now, um, I know that people are doing that at the moment, and typically they get evasive or non-responsive answers to their or responses to their letter. And in that case, um, I would say, okay, write another letter saying, dear X, I'm still a voter in your electorate. Thank you for your reply it didn't answer my questions here they are again one two yours faithfully Mm. the point is that a simple letter like that gives them nowhere to hide and um, a lot of mps simply do not know what it is i mean i was amazed i went on q a uh while george brandis was attorney general i wanted to ask him a question about whether as attorney general he thought it was a good idea for his government to be calling both people illegals when they don't commit an offence. So I thought I should set that up by asking him whether he thinks that they commit an offence. And he astounded me by saying yes. And I then Mm -hmm. said, well, what offence do they commit? And he blustered and said, well, I can't be expected to know all of that. And so that's where it it rested. Mm -hmm. But the fact is 
The fact is, they do not commit any offence by coming to Australia the way they do. Without an invitation, without a visa, they don't commit any offence. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Fiona and we've got on the line Jill Trilbidcock. I hope I've said that right, Jill. That's a long <laughs> note. <laughs> and uh, the reason for why we're talking to you is because of the sacred tree that's being scheduled for removable, removal by Vic Rhodes in Ararat. Can you give us a little bit of an understanding of what's going on up there? Yes, there's two trees. Well, there's actually many, many trees, but um, there's two empty, two hollow trees that have been culturally modified. One's about 500 years old, the others, or more, one, they're huge. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a picture, um, they're beautiful trees. Yes. There's many of them. It's a sacred landscape. They're at either end of um, Mount Langyjaran, which is called the Pregnant Princess. If you look at Mount Langyjaran from Ararat, you can see the, the mountain looks like a... A woman who's lying down, a pregnant woman. So the whole landscape is um, very special and it should be treated um, very sensitively. Um, as, uh, you know, many Aboriginals know, and in fact I had a quote, I only just woke up, so I wasn't, I forgot <laughs> I was going to be on radio. The phone was off the hook and I thought, I'd better pick the phone off the hook. Oh, you had a presentiment. Yeah, I, yeah, I did. I oh. woke up. Actually, I dreamt I was opening... Um, Letters for Auntie Sandra, oddly enough, and I got up, which was weird in itself. <laughs> well, we're, <laughs> we're, we're glad you did. What you're telling yeah. us, I guess, is that uh, the landscape there is uh, women's business and it's part of ceremony. Yes. I have a theory and I don't... Look, I, I cannot speak for Aboriginals. I'm very aware of that. Um, but I... Um, from the conversations that I have had, I have made an assumption that some Aboriginals have thought it could be correct. Um, it, it might, you know, the pregnant princess with trees on it, I believe um, birthing trees are actually sacred women's business. And so even the registration of them has been kept quiet. Um, in the past because um, of the secretiveness of that. Um, but also so it was a strategy. It was a strategy to protect because if uh, the uh, dominant uh, Western culture that was rolling over this country didn't know about these uh, places that needed to be protected, then perhaps they could be saved. Right. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good strategy and I imagine that Pregnant women probably did come to the pregnant princess to give birth. I know if I was a pregnant woman in the in those days, I probably would have too. And um, anyway, look, I've spoken with enough people to believe myself that they could be birthing trees, although the oral history has been lost. So that is a hard thing um, for me as a white woman to discuss. But I am the mother of an Aboriginal child. Who is Jabjurong and um, Gunditjmara and Miring and blah blah blah? Well, 
Uh, all the all the uh, the the peoples. Now you were the person who was given the job to actually make approaches to uh, Aboriginal Victoria or around this issue. Well, I found the tree. This is the oddest thing. I didn't find it. I found it with someone. I was I was speaking to Carmel Tanhauser, who um, is just got a was adopted at birth from a white woman and a um, a black man who went to. She was a young girl, and the black man went back to Framlingham, um, so that's all she knows about her father. And she had a dream uh, that Bunjil, the eagle, came and got her and flew flew him on her back around um, the area at the um, southern end of Mount Langidran and um, showed her the tree, and we went there, and she said, this is the place. And there actually is one link in the middle there. She... um, she told me that on this land at Mount Langijran, where the Vic Roads Road was going through, there was a birthing tree. She just said, I know it, I feel it. And then in the morning, um, she described it and said that there was water all around there. Well, we've looked at the landscape and that water um, in a flood and also spoken with old um, Isabel McKenzie. They used to have to drive through masses of water and they've changed the ground there a lot. Yeah, okay. So you can't see it anymore. But anyway, I'm not cutting to the chase. How long have I got? No, 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 it's okay. Uh, uh, This is all good. Uh, What I was, one of the things that I was really interested in was, uh, like, there's lots of talk. There's lots of uh, stuff that uh, Western society in Australia does to uh, act as if it's uh, got a conscience that it's coming to terms with the Aboriginal heart of this country but when it comes to something that means you have to divert a road, mm-hmm. they seem to think that it is, you're just not being practical. You're asking us to do something, you know, that we don't feel like we want to do. Uh, you it, know, is that yeah, what just, you're feeling about this? Oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, Aboriginal Heritage Victoria, look, I don't know what names I can name. I don't know what I can say, but I think you should be able to talk about the Minister for Planning and the head of, a, um, of, of an Aboriginal or an Aboriginal corporation. Are those things, you know, yeah, 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 go for safe it. to talk about? Okay, so a company called Martang Proprietary Limited is the registered Aboriginal um, party for that area. Now, Martang Proprietary Limited, it turns out, is actually just a small family trust and it's not inclusive. Um, I have the ASIC extract of the um, corporate setup. Um, in 2007, when the planning minister, Richard Wynne, was then the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, he um, approved the Chatfield Family Trust, Martang Proprietary Limited, to be the registered Aboriginal party for the area under the provision that they change their corporate structure to be inclusive of all Jabrong people. Now, Martang, um, that was the proviso. So then Martang became the registered Aboriginal party for the area. So when, um, in 2017 or 2018, this still hasn't changed. They still haven't changed their corporate structure to be representative of the Jabrong people. So they were very easy for Aboriginal um, Heritage Victoria to both control and to lie about. 
well, you feel that you feel that they're blind about uh, the uh, the process. So what you're saying, would I be well, right? To me, yeah, they yeah. To me. So what did they say to you? They said that the, well, what, there was a, you're a, concocting a, a story. Is that well, what they're saying? Yeah, they they said we've had. Um, oh, look, it became it became ridiculous. I wrote. I've, I've written to the um, prime minister. I've written to the um, pre- department of premier and cabinet, and I actually um, got a letter back written by the very the lower level person, who's just the um, manager for the Grampians area, who from Ballarat in Aboriginal. Heritage Victoria, and um, I get the same. He writes a letter back from. Um, I got this letter, right? I yeah. wish I'd, I wish I'd got. No, no, the but what did the letter say? Yeah, you know, tell us what the letter said. Well, thank I you very much. Said, thank you very much for your letter, but uh, bugger off. Yeah, it said, oh, we can, you know, you know, we consulted with Eastern Mar, which they hadn't. Um, I can't remember which letter. They all, they're like a templated letter that says, yeah. you know, thank you so much. We're working so hard to help you. Um, I can get the letter up. It's right here on my desktop. Um, uh, but but uh, these are but, not but of do, do, do they Aboriginal actually, significance. Yeah, they're not, it's not of Aboriginal significance. Now, I know yeah. that people came up here uh, yesterday to... Uh, uh, outside Richard Wynne's office to actually uh, bring the message home to the city. Uh, well, yeah. That is a very good idea because Richard Wynne knows that this um, particular um, registered Aboriginal party um, is a law unto themselves and, and completely manipulatable by um, uh, corporations. So where, where, yeah, where is the demonstration going at the moment? What's going on there locally? Well, yesterday um, I was up at the um, Southern Tree and the Vic Roads guy came along and they took the machinery off the property. He came along and he said, look, um, we're getting a new, um, what's the word, where you analyse? Oh, a, a, a new... Camp. Chimp. We're getting a new cultural her- heritage management plan done by um, Eastern Ma." And so until that cultural heritage management plan has been done, we're taking our machines, this is Vic Rhodes, and we're off to stall. So they've actually pulled their machines out um, with police escort, which you need for the size of the machines, and they're going off somewhere else. So we're safe for a week, I think. And I think there's also some court thing that's been adjourned, the Vic Rhodes told me, and I believe my name is on that document. Um, along with, <laughs> I know. Well, the lawyer said, "Can I put your name on here?" And I was in a hurry, and I said, "Just well, it if about? it will stop this, then yes." Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks for getting up and talking to us about this, Jill, and congratulations on the work that you've been doing. And I must say, I knew nothing about this until you, your the work of your local people uh, have brought it to our attention. And and it's a real on the grounds, you know, coming to terms with the Aboriginal heart of this country. Well, look, I feel so. It's absolutely, it's absolutely colonisation um, in, in, in the modern day. It's modern day colonisation of the Aboriginals, and um, it's not fair. It's not social justice, and I'm quite horrified that Richard Wynne, as a social worker, could um, be so unfair. And I think he should actually. There should be an independent inquiry. I'm quite serious about this um, into. Um, What's going on with um, the Aboriginal um, 
well, with this situation, you know, there, there should be an independent inquiry about inter-Aboriginal heritage Victoria. Um, Senator John Madigan said to me, you know, a guy came up to me, this is something, a guy came up to me and he said, it's really funny here, this is in Ballarat. He said, you put up a, um, a they put up an archaeologist tent and if you pay them money, they don't find anything. Oh. And if you don't, mm. yeah, and if you don't, they do. Oh. Well, I, that's just, I'm just saying, I have spoken to so many people who keep saying that um, Aboriginal Heritage Victoria really does need a shake-up because they, they are using the Aboriginal parties. This is what people say to me, and I do say, and I see it. The, the Aborig- there are too many Aboriginals that um, are being uh, manipulated by huge Persuaded. government money. All right. Oh, okay. For example, we you're be- in no, no, thank no, you so we have much. to go. Yeah, we have to go, Jill. But um, thank thanks you. very much, uh, and we we'll, we take this message on board. Yes, yes, do. And Richard, when you should look after Aboriginal people better and their landscape. Thank you. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to Three C R. Faithful gardeners, it's time to turn on and tune in to our annual Radiothon on Sunday the 24th of June from 7.30 to 10am and help keep your favourite gardening show growing. Listen in on Sunday the 24th of June and call 94198377 for great deals on seeds, new organic products, gardening tools, nursery vouchers, magazine subscriptions and new green focus book titles or make a tax deductible donation to support 3CR Community Radio. Join us at the station after the show from 10 till 12pm to pick up your prizes, have a cuppa and say hello. Dig deep for the 2018 3CR Gardening Radiothon, 7.30 till 10am on Sunday the 24th of June. I love trees with all their lovely leaves Lifting up their branches to the sky You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Fiona and uh, we uh, thank all those people who contributed to uh, the Solidarity Breakfast Radiothon. We still haven't made our target. 3CR is still moving towards its target of 250,000. But uh, I I do gratefully thank all those people who did contribute to Solidarity Breakfast and if there's any more people out there who want to dig into their pockets uh, and give some donations specifically to Solidarity Breakfast, that will... uh, uh, well, you know, when you do a program, you wonder if uh, you're interesting enough, really. Uh, but anyway, moving right along, on Saturday I went to the uh, Green Left comedy debate and, uh, of course, everybody in Melbourne will be aware of the uh, dis- disgraceful and dreadful, awful death of Eurydice Nixon uh, the week before and uh, her uh, con- uh, her funeral was uh, on uh, Friday uh, and uh, on Thursday actually and uh, uh, condolences to her father and brother Uh, but uh, I thought I'd bring to you the uh, tribute that uh, her fellow comedians gave on the night of the comedy debate. There's a slight change to the um, agenda, the usual agenda for the Green Left Weekly comedy debate. We want to take a few minutes to remember and pay our respects to young comedian Eurydice Dixon. We'll just take a few minutes to do that. We'll then, after this um, uh, portion of the agenda, invite people to take a five-minute break. 
and then we'll be coming back to start the debate. Eurydice's life was taken last week. She was taken from her family, her friends, her community and her audience. Eurydice and her family were part of this community, are part of this community. Many comrades here tonight know the Dixons, know Eurydice. We're devastated for them. In respect and recognition of Eurydice and of her family of lefty feminist ratbag comedians, many of whom are here tonight, we've invited two fellow comedians of Eurydice's to say something about her. Sharon Andrews in words and Pradeepa Timmerman in song. Please welcome Sharon and Pradeepa. Thanks. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the family and friends of uh, Eurydice and I'd like to acknowledge my comedic brothers and sisters as well. It's been a very difficult week. Um, I am an academic uh, as well as a comedian and um, one of my favourite political uh, uh, theorists is Hannah Arendt and she notes that the human condition, uh, one thing about the human condition is that we are all the same in that we are all uniquely different. We are all uh, individuals. And uh, a lot of people actually struggle to kind of embrace that individuality and to represent it. Eurydice didn't. <laughs> she was a gloriously uh, unique human being. She was a gloriously unique comedian. Uh, it was one of her key strengths because she had a very distinct point of view that she brought to the stage and a very distinct uh, stage persona. And uh, Eurydice as a comedian was one of the funniest people that you would have ever had the privilege to listen to because she was incredibly smart and she was an incredibly fierce feminist. And the thing about Eurydice, when I used to sit and watch her and I used to love listening to her because um, I never knew where she was going to come in and I never knew where she was going. And I really had to think about every bit of material that she did on stage. And uh, there's not a lot of comedians that are like that. A lot of comedians, with a, when you've got a weird-ass comedic brain, you can kind of pick where they're going, you know? Uh, but Eurydice wasn't like that. She was extraordinary. She was extraordinarily smart, funny, fierce and brave. And I'd ask you, in the coming weeks and months, when we hear these stories, there will be stories coming up in the news, I would ask that you... Remember and say to yourself, she was fierce, she was funny, she was smart, and she was brave. We have to do justice for Eurydice, and we have to do that in our own lives, and we have to do that on stage, and we have to do that out in the world. And I'd ask that you contribute to that. Thank you. My name is Pradeepa. 
I'm singing for you tonight. I usually do stand-up comedy. I did a lot of gigs with Eurydice. We both went through Yes All Women's Comedy together. We um, did a lot of gigs there together. We both sort of started around the same time. We um, drove to a festival together and back. I made muffins for her on her 21st birthday and brought them along to a gig because she didn't want to organise her own 21st, so I just hijacked the comedy gig and we celebrated together with her. Um, so in the wake of what happened last week, um, I felt to sing this song. It's a song called Blessed We Are. It's uh, by a woman called Pia. And I've also, the second verse to the song, or the second section of the song, I've written especially for Eurydice. The first part is to give you an idea of where the song is coming from. I've only just written it, so at times I have to stop and refer to my notes. Please excuse me. I think you'll get it. to a comedy piece she did not making fun of her so I'm just going to start this bit again You gave the feminists a serve You were brilliant with no shame And because you had a lisp couldn't pronounce 
to have had you in our lives you gave us your comment um and actually there's a um Kirsty Mack has a, had appeared on the um, program as one of the debaters tonight. Uh, uh, Kirsty, like um, like a lot of people close to Eurydice, is finding it hard to get the words out, um, and Duff has kindly agreed to step in um, for Kirsty, so we thank him. Um, two more things to say: the fam there is a, um, a GoFundMe online for the family of Eurydice. I uh, urge you to have a look at that if you um, look up Eurydice Dixon um, on the GoFundMe, the, uh, um, that um, uh, donation site is available. Also, as you probably know, and we'll get this around, on Monday, uh, this coming Monday, from 5.30 to 7.30, there's a um, vigil for Eurydice on pitch two at Prince's Park in Carlton North. Um, I'm sure it's going to be huge and I'd urge everybody to, to come along. And finally, um, we decided we wouldn't have a moment's silence for the Eurydice, it didn't seem appropriate. Uh, instead, we might have two hours of comedy and uh, we would like to invite people to um, stand and raise their glasses to a funny, brave young woman. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when the Caring Business Class Party voted to privatise the ABC, that home of out-of-control radicals like Amanda Millstone, causing several ministers of state to choke over their single malt scotches, get the cat back in the bag, denying there was any plan to flog auntie off, pointing out that just because it was party policy didn't mean it was party policy. Although big economic guru Scuttlebeam Morlash son turned on his renowned wit, commenting that, <laughs> that many people must think <laughs> the Socialist Party already owns it. <laughs> He's such a funny man, isn't he? A clue that just perhaps the caring business class lot might think it is a bit biased. There's no doubt about it that Lord Rupert's team and other responsible media outlets ask good questions, they explained, and undertake responsible investigative journalism like exposing evil unions and workers rorting their caring employers and union bosses rorting super funds. If Lord Rupert owned the ABC, the balance would swing back to the sensible centre of the right. But having said that, we have no intention of privatising the ABC, and that's a politician's word. So, listener, it looks like the ABC's in real trouble. Although I must admit I've never noticed this left bias which gives the usual suspects apoplexy, but if the centre-right content it presents does give the usual suspects apoplexy, keep it up, ABC. If only we could invent a means of delivering 3CR subliminally to them as they sleep. Although maybe turning Senator Erica Betts on the bosses loose on the microphone to put the ABC as a commie long-haired agit prop front case could be a Machiavellian leftist plot, knowing he'll make a complete twit of himself. 
The official spokesperson, Minister for Friendly Unprobing Questions, Mitch Five Field ABC Questions, said it would be impossible for the majority caring business class policy to ever ever be implemented because the parliamentarians determine policy, leaving us to ponder why anyone other than parliamentarians bothered to turn up at these party thingies. But, Mitch, we asked, what happens to the ever-ever bit if the party thingy majority became a parliamentary majority? Mitch asked whether we were from the ABC and declared he refused to answer biased questions. Lord Rupert wouldn't ask a silly question like that. So when he owns the ABC... No, no, sorry, we have no intention of privatising the ABC. On telecommunications, opt for us, you suckers, handed public property for a pittance by the neoliberal nuclear hawk himself, world's greatest worst treasurer, Paul Government, to bring competition policy onto the great level playing field of world's best practice to telecommunications, and hasn't that been a roaring success? Had all these subscribers forking out their hard earned to enjoy all these World Cup matches, having a rollicking time staring at a blank screen, screaming at the screen rather than the streaming they were sold, while those watching the inefficient public sector SBS broadcasts were forced to watch the game. Given they're allowed one game a day after opt for us, you suckers paid plenty to take the right for all games off them. Selfishly, many of the suckers want their money back talk about kicking a great company when it's down. And the great company Supremo said its World Cup uh, coverage was an excellent product, leaving us to ponder what he might consider a slightly faulty product, indeed a disaster. Or conversely, the public SBS product must be in the excellent product stratosphere. And the big Supremo described it as an excellent product while announcing SBS would show all games for at least the next week or so due to the excellent product delivering those who shelled out their hard-earned the pleasure of that blank screen. Let's hope that doesn't destroy competition policy or our faith in privatisation in the great corporate sector providing public services for an appropriate fee. Over in and not quite in the US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the pause consistent inconsistency almost reached new heights or depths depending how we look at it as he kept yet another promise this time to make Mexico pay for the wall. Although at the time we didn't realise he meant the Mexican people et al attempting to cross the virtual wall bristling with trained killers protecting liberty, freedom freedom and democracy, thus addressing the real problem. Mexicans, they keep having bloody children. If they didn't keep having children, there'd be no trouble, no Mexicans, no problems at the border, the virtual wall, illegally attempting to bring down US of society, similar to all those no proper papers, queue jumping, illegal boat people fleeing our invasions and other disasters, attempting to bring down true Blue society. So we can empathise with poor Donald trying to prevent the destruction of his society, and it must be serious because we all recall how the US of led international anger, international distaste indeed, produced all the proof we needed at the cruel ripping off dear little children and precious babies from their parents by the evil that damn Hussein. And the US of and the freedom of capital world realised this proved that damn Hussein didn't believe those dear little babies 
were born in the image of the dear baby Jesus, making us realize even more how serious the Mexican invasion must be that the U.S. of, which loves the dear baby Jesus, loves, love thy neighbor as thyself, do unto others, that the U.S. of must rip dear little children and precious babies from their parents, proving how evil these Mexicans are and how evil their children and babies are. And like True Blue Aussie, Donald knows these people fleeing disaster, invasion, persecution are not fleeing disaster, invasion, persecution, because if they were, they would be refugees and not illegal, but Donald and True Blue Aussie know they are illegal and so illegal, they are now charged under criminal law with appropriate sentences like life without parole or near enough to it, rather than civil law, which carried namby-pamby weak sentences like a slap on the wrist and being thrown back across the train killer wall. But then we discovered Donald wasn't ripping non-dear little children and babies from their evil, illegal, criminal parents, that Donald was bringing families together by making parents and children appreciate each other even more. Separation makes the heart grow fonder. And Donald's heart all but burst at the sight of riven families. It was a horrible thing, like the horrible things his predecessor had done, which so upset Donald bit of a pity he didn't say which horrible things because there's no way he would have just made it up and we know an uncrowned Nobel Peace Laureate would never treat people badly unless they happen to be under the drones at the wrong time which would be their own fault we can't blame Donald for that or his predecessor for that matter poor Donald has so much on his plate meeting with now very very close friend Rocket Man a strong leader like me good wonderful I asked my new very close friend to advise me how to keep the big supremo job in the family for generation after generation. Wonderful, good, great. And he continued the business of corporate government by explaining how to make good, good, asterisk, asterisk for the time being, North Korea great again, just like he is making the U.S. of great again. There's a whole country of prime real estate, condos, hotels, gold courses, uh, uh, golf courses, the trample the poor condo, the trample the poor tower, the trample the poor golf resort. The prospects are endless for world peace. Great, great. The commander-in-chief then thanked evil China for its role in facilitating the new deep friendship. What better way of expressing my sincerity and heartfelt thanks to evil China than slapping lots more tariffs so they can't keep ripping us off? Bad, bad. Prompting evil China to slap more tariffs on great U.S. of, particularly the bits of great again U.S. of that vote for Donald, clearly as backward as, although given the choice, uh, maybe not. Anyway, prompting Donald to warn evil China that if it retaliated, it would be bad, bad, as he also warned G6 of the G7 they would feel his full wrath if they dared retaliate to his attacks on them. And to make matters worse, they had been a bit critical of his environmental policies, and anyway, 
his policy as part of making the US of great again by eliminating poverty. As a report just this week showed, his rescinding of air quality legislation would lead to a million or more extra deaths due to air non-quality. And we can be sure almost all those deaths would be the poor. So what thanks does Donald get? What credit for working to eliminate poverty? None. Well, none from the poor who won't be around thanks to Donald, although the great corporates do realise the contribution he's making and have thanked him profusely, showing that they at least know all about making the US of great again. Finally, one notion giant mind that appalling Hoonsung took a lesson from Donald's book, not that she needs a mentor in deep thinking and consistency. By supporting tax cuts for the filthy rich 132 times for the week and opposing tax cuts for the filthy rich 131 times. And the government was fortunate she was in support mode when the vote was taken. Another, another minute and who knows? Although there was one ray of hope. That appalling denied she would benefit personally from her vote. Uh, but you will. A journo asked, must have been from that commie hotbed, the ABC. No, I mightn't be in the Senate when it comes in. Oh, let's hope for once. She's spot on. Good morning. Also had to move to Humphrey because, Humphrey, I've read your account of the banks and it's so dense I really couldn't not hear what you had to say. So, Oh, well... <laughs> I hope it's not too dense for the audience over their breakfast, but we'll do what we can to make it clear as well as dense. Okay. Yeah, look, I mean, this started for me, well, many years ago, I did a long piece about the history of banking in Australia, going back to the Bank of New South Wales in 1817. And that's up on the website, and there's a link across to that on the stuff I've sent you. So anyone who wants to follow all the way through and all the stuff they've got up to in the past. Yeah, I'll put it on the podcast page, okay? Okay. But with this Royal Commission... And let me stay at the beginning. That's the last time I'm going to say the word royal. Um, we're now, you know, it's a bit of a Republican station on 3CR, so we're going to talk about the Malpractices Commission. And that is important because the title of the commission itself is it's an investigation into only the malpractices, it says, of, and then it runs through banks, um, and um, uh, and financial institutions and superannuation funds. Now, if you go back to the Commission of Inquiry in the 1930s, which Ben Chifley was on, which led him towards bank nationalisation, those the terms of reference then were into the banking system. Now, there's a huge difference between malpractice of institutions and the entire financial system. And that's not what we're... We're never going to get anywhere near that at the moment. Because what that would mean... Let's give you, you know, a couple well, of... Well, card capital, they're card-carrying capitalists, so yes, we won't. Well, yeah, you know, we've got... And I mean, what they were trying to do then was to look at what the financial system did towards the development of the, of, the, of the entirety of the capitalist system. Because what they were concerned about, remember this is in the middle of the depression, so they're concerned about are the banks providing funds to create opportunities for employment? 
And Chifley's concern, and a number of other people's concern, was that, no, they weren't. They weren't prepared to lend money to, uh, to, to manufacturing, small manufacturing firms in Australia. Um, and so the inquiry was looking into... So what you're saying is that there wasn't any returns. So it wasn't a good, capitalists well, it, can yeah. eat their money if they want. Yeah, well, I mean, they were. I mean, historically, they'd been tied into the pastoral industry and into the mining industry, into the big end of town. Um, they were not concerned to develop the kinds of things that were going to provide employment for urban members of the working class. Um, and so, that was. The, I mean, that was the circumstances under um, um, under which that was taking place. So that was one of the things that struck me. And the other was that for a while, the entire focus was on the shock horrors. And they were, you know, they still are. I mean, you know, a number of people. I mean, even, even I have been a bit surprised. And some of the things they got up to, you think, my God, you know, truly. Um, but that's not what it's about. And all of the things that are wrong with the system would be wrong if they hadn't gone around stoning pennies off the eyes of dead men <laughs> or evicting blind old-age pensioners. Uh, I mean, they're the awful things that, you know, that have really come out about. Well, they're the headline stories, and, of they're course, that's what stories. headline stories are all about. It's about and, emotion. Yeah, you know, sort of, you know, as, as they say in accidents, you know, that, that, if, that if there's a lot of blood, then it's, going to, then, then, then it's going to make a headline. Well, it plays. Well, but, but what we have to do is to look at how the system functions. And it functions, it can function without those kind of extreme events. And we have to examine what it is that the financial system is doing within the wider part of the global capitalist system. You mean because quiet thievery? Ha- Sorry, the Quiet thievery. Yes, well, I mean, well, I mean, we have to look at why it is that a regime of credit is absolutely essential to the functioning of a capitalist system. Um, and there are people around the left, I know, who think, oh, we could do away with money and you could still have capitalism and wouldn't that be better? Or you could do away with the banks or it's all the fault of the banks. Well, the banks do pretty terrible things, but to understand how they function and why they function the way they do, we have to look at the entire functioning of the complete capitalist system. So that's what I set out to do. Now, um, as you say, there's an enormous amount that, that you have to do as a consequence of this. And two of the big things, you know, well, half a big thing to start with, there's all of those other financial institutions um, those terrible you know, lying ratings agencies that were exposed during the collapse in 2008, 2009. You know, they were just you know, truly taking funds from the big institutions to tell lies about how effective they were. Um, then there's the accounting firms and the lawyers like Freehills and these other lot. You know, that's all part of the system. Um, and they, in turn, are linked into the foreign exchange market, the, the, the banks are necessarily linked into the, um, into, into the whole of the stock and share market and the bond market. You can't look at how this has gone wrong from the capitalist point of view even if you are only looking at the malpractices of a, of a 
tiny fraction of all the financial institutions. So that's one of the things that I really wanted to stress. But we can't look at it again unless we look at another big change that happened. And no one's going to ask this question. There's no pressure coming from the ALP. There never has been in this whole debacle where they've been going around pressing to have a commission of inquiry. But again, leaving out the big change that happened with financial deregulation. And, and, and the single biggest bit of that, which needs to be investigated because of its consequences for everything else, was the, was the floating of the Australian dollar in December 1983. So much of what has happened since was possible only because of that. Uh, and unless you investigate the consequences of floating the Australian currency, and that means in turn going back and looking at what was happening both in the Australian economic system and in the global economic system, not just the financial system, but the entire global economy, what was happening that was making it essential that the old fixed-rate exchange system which we'd operated on, you know, really for over 100 years, why could that no longer work? And if you don't understand that, if you don't understand that big change... Well, what did happen? Well, one of the things that happened was that the... Well, let me give you a, a, a pretty good example from the Australian point of view. The development of the world car. Finance has to follow the real economy. It has to service us. That's what it's for. It provides the funds that go into it. It organises the, the flow of funds once the big new industries are, are, are beginning to operate. And out of the changes that we're having around the automobile industry, and this is just one example of what was happening, um, and to go into, you know, we can't go into all of this detail, but the big oil price um, the increased from 73-74, plus Japanese competition with smaller cars, meant that GM and, and Ford, the, the big American makers, were having to shift away from the great eight-cylinder cars toward retooling for the four and, and the six-cylinder cars. And this meant that they were going to have to spend a lot of money around the world on putting in new car plants. And they came up with this notion, which you know we now refer to as the world car. And in Australia's case, it meant that instead of making the entire car in Australia, um, as we had been doing uh, since the late 1940s, what would happen is that, that, that um, General Motors would put an engine plant into the Philippines. And we would get export credits if we exported things from Australia into the world car and they would import in exchange for these things um, into Australia to, you know, 200,000 car engines out of the Philippines. So, so now, what you're saying is that, that there was a fragmentation of the physical world which then uh, fed into uh, huge corporations that were overarching the world. And they needed to be able to move the funds around. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, the, the, they couldn't operate on these old fixed rates exchanges and things. Now, of course, 
at the same time, the financial system had been in turmoil as well. And uh, um, the whole of the Bretton Woods system had collapsed by 1971. So that that way in which you could exchange your, you know, if, if you were... If the American economy owed the German economy money, the Germans on paper could go to uh, the American Treasury and up to Fort Knox and say, here are your dollars, would you please give us the same amount in heavy weights of gold? Now, that was what was supposed to happen on paper. I mean, people didn't do that, but that was what the Bretton Woods thing was in a sense saying. So value for value, but that wasn't going to uh, wash anymore. After 71, all all of that simply collapsed. So that all of these things were operating. And And here's the poor little Australian economy, you know, which really gets, you know, has no weight in controlling these things. We have to go along with it. But if you don't understand, if you don't even begin to see the changes in the global capitalist system that, that were driving towards this, and you, the other thing you have, of course, is that by, by 1983, you had plenty of financial institutions around the world that knew exactly how to play one currency off against it, uh, against another currency. And, and that was certainly happening to the Australian, the Australian currency as well. That, that the collapse in the Australian dollar... I mean, if I just give you... you know, remind people of anyone... You know, in 1974, virtually, you got two American dollars for one Australian dollar. You know, I mean, that, you know, I mean, unbelievable. But it was to do with the mining boom. Um, because so much minerals were being exported from here that the value of the Australian dollar simply went up through the roof with enormous consequences in turn for the exchange rate and therefore for the survival of smaller manufacturing in Australia. Um, so that this whole complex picture... So, so the whole of Australian econ- um, economy is for government and for business is based around originally it was the pastoralists now it's mining and well, everybody yeah, else yeah. can just keep peddling if they if they yeah. want yeah well you know and we had put in um, partly to maintain, as I said before, that they did come out of the 30s with this sense that we do need to build up a manufacturing base here. And about 23, 24% of the, the workforce by the early 1970s was engaged in some kind of... We're actually making cars and refrigerators and television sets and all sorts of things here. Now, that, I think, has gone down to about 7 or 8% now. Yeah, uh, but this, uh, is, this is because, like, small business and manufacturing actually employs people, while these other bigger industries don't, as a general rule, not much, not, not uh, a, a large amount of people, in fact, and increasingly fewer and fewer. Yeah, and... You know, I mean, I mean, these are, these are really global forces, which change over you know over reasonably short periods of time, and to understand the basis as to how it is that the Australian financial system, the regimes of credit in Australia, uh, actually operate today, unless you put your head into the space that says, how did this come to be? How is it that we lost control of this? Because in deregulating the the value of of, of the Australian currency um, officially, so it was it, it was then it was then officially supposed to float. 
what this led to, if I could just leap ahead 10 years, well, not 10 years, even, even only seven years, to the recession we had to have. Um, the reason that we were in such a dire... Well, the Australian government, amongst others, and the population as well, was in such a terrible state out of this, was that there was the Reserve Bank, who was supposed to be in charge of these things, uh, going around saying, we are using every arm of policy in order to control the collapse in the economy. Well, they were. The problem was that the Hawke-Keating uh, lot had left them with only one arm. And the only arm of policy they had left was to push up the rate of interest. So up it went to 18, 19, 20%. You know, the people in small business were simply... Well, I mean, my favourite example of this is that Wheel and the Wrecker was wrecked <laughs> by these 20% interest rates. Yeah, not surprising. Uh, Tell us about uh, the Macquarie Bank, because they're a special case, aren't they? Well, they, they begin in 1985. They come into existence because there's a group of these smarties who say, we can make money out of this. There's all this free movement of money around the world now. Um, we can set up a bank to do exactly this, which is what they do in 1985. Um, they are the product of this Global change, you know, I mean, it's, it's expressed here in a number of, of decisions by Howard and then deepened and driven forward by the Hawke-Keating lot. Um, so uh, they become one of the many ways that it, it's happening, but it happens through the construction industry as well. Um, the whole of the, of the big construction, I'm not talking about, you know, putting up suburban houses, although the consequences flow on to there. Um, but the big construction of office blocks in town, which had been done in the old days by funds coming out of the, the those very stable mutual insurance companies like AMP, which was a kind of mum and dad organisation on a grand scale, um, that all of that all of that begins to change because the access to funds from overseas changes. And what happens when, by the time you jump ahead, you know, back to where we were with the 1890 recession, uh, sorry, 1990 recession we had to have, is that there, as you bump, you know, as the only thing you can do is to try and control this you know, inflation, is to push up the the, the kind of normal rate of interest, to, as I say, towards you know, 18, 19, 20%. People are losing their houses, they're losing their farms, all kinds of things out of this because all the other arms of policy to control the system had been, you know, just been amputated. So that when we look at how we got to this great situation now where Keating goes around saying, oh, we drove inflation out of the system and we haven't, you know, and we've benefited from it since. You've got to ask yourself, go back to there and say, how did this inflation get rampant in the first place? Now, the other things that happen out of this, as we move forward, the experience of this, and this is one of the good things that happened here, unlike other parts of the world, most other parts of the world, is that the shock out of some of the disasters, because because the Bank of New South Wales, which had turned itself into Westpac as part of this, you know, was going to take on the Western Pacific in 1982. Uh, they took over the commercial bank. So you get in 
intensification, concentration of the of the power of the banks. So we've only got the big four, um, and out of this you get the situation in which you get um, Westpac engaging in all kinds of wild activities, thinking it's going to take on the world, and it almost almost goes bankrupt uh, in 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 eighteen nineteen ninety two. The whole of the board by the end of the year, virtually has to resign. So that you've got this enormous um, threat to the entire financial system. And out of this, they did learn a lesson. So that the deregulation of what they allowed the banks to do here was never as loose as it was in the United States and in the United Kingdom. So when the crash came in 2008, the Australian banks... They were still being guaranteed by the Australian government, but they didn't have to be bailed out. Hey, did, are are you saying, am I right in this picture, that uh, you've got a whole lot of uh, private individuals and private uh, people running the banks that are so important to the economy that if they go completely rogue, we're all stuffed? Well, that's exactly what happened in, in September 2008. We're coming up to the 10th anniversary. Yeah, right. Um, that, you know, that... That unless I mean, what almost happened, we're in 30 minutes away from it. People say, in which the big banks, and I'm talking about the you know, I mean, the Australian banks are small by comparison. Yeah, we owe really our banks owe banks the other the bigger banks. Yeah, for the system to function, they are lending each other money back and forth every second of the day. Computer switches you go bang bang, you know. Um, you know, $500 million. So, so what you're, and, are you saying, Humphrey, that this uh, investigation into the rotten nature of banking in Australia is really just the tip of the iceberg? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and we're, you know, I mean, okay, it'll clean up some things that need to be cleaned up. There's no doubt about they that. They won't be uh, stealing money from dead people. Well, maybe. <laughs> well,. They'll find new ways of doing it. Let me yeah. put it like that. You can't, you know, you can't trust them not to. But the big issues as to where the financial system fits into the productive system and into the general welfare of the Australian people and where that is going to go in the future, the reason for looking at the past is to see what are those dynamics that are going to carry us forward into the future. And unless you have some sense of how we got to where we are, for good or ill, then you're not going to know what you might do, what are the best options as to, as to, how, to, as to how to proceed forward from there. Uh, and so I think that around the left, there's always the tendency to say a kind of, ha-ha, told you so, how awful they are. Well, fine. But it's not going to get us very far. No, we no. really do have to put our thinking caps on and look at the way in which the regimes of credit, as Marx called them, are essential to the development and the progress and the expansion of the global capitalist system. So, so, so before you go, Humphrey, yep. um, you're not a great fan of the one rotten apple principle, well, which I they am. like to tell. I love it. I mean, I want it back. <laughs> I mean, here I am all my life. I've trusted the capitalist system because whenever anything goes wrong, what are we told? There's one rotten apple. <laughs> the sound barrel, all the apple, other apples are fine. And now they've taken the one rotten apple away. The whole of the financial system turns out to be a big rotten apple. And if the, <laughs> if the financial system's one big rotten apple and the financial system 
it is the thing that all the other apples in the capitalist barrel depend upon, then the whole of the barrel of capitalism is wrong. And I can't bear that. That's too painful. We have to... Please, please, Commissioner Hain, give me back my one rotten apple. <laughs> we'll please, talk... please restore our faith in the, in the soundness of the barrel of capitalism. <laughs> give us back our rotten apple. We'll talk to you again in a couple we of weeks' time. Thank you we very will. much, Well, let me Humphrey. say one quick thing. Yeah? On Sunday, tomorrow, the Bank for International Settlement puts out its annual report. So all you've got to do is go online, look up Bank for International Settlement, and you'll see what they think is the future of capitalism for the next 12 months. Oh, thank you. Good advice. Okay. All right, Annie. Marvellous. Yeah, and that was Humphrey McQueen. We have to come to the end of the program. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and uh, we looked at uh, a film that's coming out next week, I think it is, at Nova uh, Border Politics. Uh, we uh, talked about the uh, sacred tree in outside Ararat and how Vic Rhodes and uh, the... Uh, the powers that be in general need to actually walk the talk when they come when it comes to uh, the uh, Aboriginal landscape, the uh, country we live in, and uh, we went to a heartrending uh, memorial to uh, Eurydice Nixon that was at the uh, Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate. Uh, the Monday uh, memorial that they were talking about, of course, is already gone. Thousands of people went to that memorial, and then we followed up with uh, looking at the banks and what the financial system is all about. We're going to wave goodbye with Lou Bennett and Sweet Cheeks. Talk to you next week. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.